Today is the third day of our autumn seven-day session. It's the 17th of May 2016. And we'll be continuing on from where we left off yesterday. Uh, we looked at, at the story um, from Hidden Lamp, The Old Woman's Enlightenment, and Master Hakuin's teaching. He said, he said in a Taisho, Your mind is like the pure land is the pure land and your body is Amida Buddha. When Amida Buddha, mountains, rivers, forests and fields all radiate a great light. If you want to understand, look into your own heart. And this is old woman who heard this and uh, did exactly what Hakun instructed. She pondered this day and night, waking and sleeping, until she saw that mountains, rivers, forests and fields did indeed shine with light. And when she saw this, she danced for joy and dropped the pot she was washing and went to see Hakuan. Hakuan came out with, what are you talking about? Does the light shine up your asshole? And at this, at this test, she pushed him and, and exclaimed, I see you're not enlightened yet. And then they both burst, burst out laugh, laughing. And we were looking at this, this whole um, question of, we're beginning to look at this whole question of enlightened, what this means, what it is. Because you could say that the, the, what the old lady saw was that Master Hakun didn't have anything that she didn't have. Now, if, that's, if that's the case, what's all the fuss about? T.S. Eliot puts it well in um, one of his poems, I think it's, it's Little Gidding. He says, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will to be arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. What we're going to do today is is explore this question of what um, what can and can't be said about alignment um, through through a, a kind of a case study, and, and this is um, coming from a, a book called Zen Teachings in Practice, edited by Kenneth Craft, which is um, a fist shrift, uh, in other words, a series of articles. Um, celebrating and re-evaluating a book, The Three Pillars of Zen, which is uh, where for many of us um, our ideas about enlightenment come from. And this was much more so when the book first came out because there was so little material available in English on Zen, especially on Zen practice.
So um, we left off, and this, the, re- the article we're reading from is called Seeing the Ox, A Second Look, and it's by um, uh, Roshi Sunyana Graves. We left off where she was um, posing the question about the Enlightenment accounts in the Three Pillars of Zen. Did they point the way or did they mislead? She, was, she said that, that um, his stories are really a kind of double-edged sword. For some people, um, providing inspiration and motivation, but for others, um, leading to a, a skewed view of what what practice is all about. And, and as I commented yesterday, sometimes it could be both of these. She writes, As students of Roshi Kaplow, every one of us had read the three pillars. But of all the outstanding material within those covers, it was the King Show stories that held the most intense fascination for many of us 20-year-olds. Indeed, the greater our confusion and desperation, the greater our obsession with enlightenment. And there were a lot of confused, desperate people coming to the Zen Center in the years just after The Three Pillars was published. And it was published, I think, in 1967. I'll just say something here about about this word, Kensho. Um, it, It literally means seeing reality and um, the way it's, it's generally used in, in our tradition is to refer to a, an initial uh, um, awakening experience um, but also the subsequent ones but it's sometimes um, differentiated from sartori which is reserved for really deep thoroughgoing uh, great enlightenment but add something here about about what Kensho is because it's really not just seeing oneness seeing beyond duality especially um, seeing seeing the oneness of self and other and form and emptiness it also involves being able to express what we've seen Sometimes we can we can have a glimpse, but we we can't. Uh, it's it's not something that's translatable in our lives. Um, for for it, um, it to be a, a genuine kensho, it has to be more than just an experience, but something something that that includes. Um, Understanding what we would, would call realization. Um, in other words, one can be we can, one can be questioned about it and be able to respond in a non-conceptual way. And actually, even 
even realization is only half because we have to take that understanding that we have and apply it to our lives and that can be a big task we get a, a glimpse into no, no self but we still have a, a self so we're definitely or, or identify with a self would be better to say and so we it's, it takes work to to bring our life into accord with what we've understood more more on that as we go through this this um, article For most of us, the lure of Kensho was impossible to resist. After all, it seemed to promise exactly the sort of life-altering experience we were searching for. And then she, she gives um, three different quotes from the Kensho accounts. First one is Mr. K.Y., a Japanese executive. Then, all at once, I was, tr- I was struck as though by lightning and the next instant heaven and earth crumbled and disappeared. Instantaneously, like surging waves, a tremendous delight welled up in me, a veritable hurricane of delight. This limitless freedom is beyond all expression. And then Mr. K.T., a Japanese gardener. I felt that through the experience of enlightenment, the human mind can expand to the infinity of the cosmos. And then Mr. A.K., a Japanese insurance adjuster. I overflowed with joy, which beggared description. And then um, Roshi Grace comments. This was heady stuff, and we were enthralled by it. In fact, we were so focused on this one goal that we actually kept track. She finally had Kedjo, we would here whispered excitedly after a session and would, we would slip over to our dharma sister to give her a meaningful hug it was such a strong session five people broke through we would gloat moreover we believed that people who were enlightened were special certainly more advanced spiritually and generally on a, genuinely on a s- somewhat higher plane than those who had not yet seen into their koan Never mind if the newly awakened Dharma brother became inflated with pride. Never mind if his ego still asserted itself in outrageous ways. He was enlightened, and that was what really counted. I think one of the things we can just say about this was we have to recognize that that there was a lot of immaturity in the Sangha, not only were most of the, the people who were there very young with not much life experience, but the, the Sangha itself, the community itself, was very young. The promise of Kensho was a driving force of amazing power. K- 
convinced as we were that enlightenment was the sole way to attain peace of mind, we committed ourselves to practice with a fierce, single-minded intensity. We had read the accounts and were certain that our lives would undergo cosmic transformations. We would emerge whole and complete, healed in body and mind. We can, we can perhaps smile at the immaturity of these sort of overblown expectations, but I think we can also be, um, feel admiration for the faith that is behind them. And that faith can, can take you a long way. The turbulent 60s and 70s brought seekers to the Rochester Zen Centre in droves. Sessions at that time held every month were always oversubscribed. Often more than 100 applicants vied for the 60 or so seats available in the Zendo. People had to be turned away, which meant that a system or principle was needed to decide who would contribute most to the session and who would benefit from most from it. This unavoidable selection process led to the conclusion that those who attended sittings regularly were more serious about their practice than those who were less regular. Single people with temporary part-time jobs therefore had a competitive edge when it came to Sashin acceptance. And of course the people who, who couldn't be at the centre as much were often people with young families demanding jobs. And this, there was a still, although things had changed greatly when we were there, there was still a residue from those days, which was a feeling among people who had had families at that time that they were sidelined, not not seen, not valued, and that their practice was somehow seen as being less than those who could be there round the clock. In those days, Sashin's at Rochester Zen Centre had a reputation for being the boot camp of Zen training. Roshi Kaplow's Tashos and the monitor's encouragement talks were geared toward helping people summon the determination and energy to break through their koans, justly described as difficult to penetrate, difficult to unravel, difficult to enter. It was not unusual for students to sit through an entire seven-day session with only a few hours of sleep. Participants would routinely skip meals to dedicate themselves to Zazen, sometimes going without eating for several days. The Kyosaku was used incessantly, some would say mercilessly, to rouse sitters to a fevered pitch. On the last few nights of session, those working on the koan mu were encouraged to bellow mu during the final round of zazen. Then, at the next bell, everyone would jump up to do a type of running meditation which generated even more energy. And they still actually do these, the, this, uh, the loud mooing and the, and the um, very fast kinghin, not as fast as it used to be. They still do, do these in sessions um, at Chapin Mill. They're not things that I've um, continued with here these last two um, and it, partly it's because they seem sort of in a way um, artificial to be trying to sort of wind the session up um, 
when by by the last night there's usually plenty of energy in the sashin and no need to sort of artificially pump it up any further also when we when we started having sashins we had didn't have so many people working on moo and so it, uh, the, the loud mooing wouldn't really have been effective but then not doing it we found that that um, sashins were uh, equally powerful some of these other things are going without sleep and food um, use of the kiosaku um, very um, intensively my guess is that for some people these things would have been helpful uh, and others not and um, I know for myself um, having read these kinds, these kinds of accounts and hearing of other people's experiences um, I tried out going with very little sleep and, and found that it really up, was only helpful up to a point and beyond it it was counterproductive uh, but really the only thing I got out of that in trying to not, not sleep was um, learning that it didn't, wasn't something that worked for me but I can't speak for others There was fierce competition for the opportunity to attend Doksan, the private encounter with the Master, since Roshi could only see about half the participants during each of the, two, of the three two-hour blocks, um, like us when Doksan would have been offered. In, moments, in the moments before Doksan began, the inspiring words of the monitors, followed by the vigorous whacking of the stick, created an intensity bordering on hysteria. The zendo filled with crackling energy, adrenaline surged, hearts pounding as everyone waited for Roshi's handbell to signal the start of Doksan. The instant the bell rang, students flew off their mats to be first in the waiting line. Races to Doksan resulted in more than a few injuries over the years. <laughs> that reduced in my time, but I still know quite a few people who who drew blood going to Dogsan. Um, once, Bowden Colheed and I, responding to the bell, jumped off our mats at precisely the same instant. As we hurtled through the Zendo doors, we collided, falling to the ground in a heap. The people coming from behind did not even slow down. They just... <laughs> they just ran around us like a stream flowing past a rock. As for us, we helped each other up, dusted ourselves off and resumed the race. Now, this is Sunyana Roshi's version. The version I get from my teacher, Bowden Roshi, was different actually. His version was that she pushed him down and got, <laughs> and got him first. I think we can say there's a, that um, let me just read a little bit more and then comment the highly charged atmosphere of Sashin was often compared to a pressure cooker 
an apt analogy. The pressure was so great that people occasionally broke under the strain. The sound of the kyosaku alone, even without feeling its stinging bite, was enough to dissuade some sitters from attending a second session. All this was done for the purpose of helping students come to awakening, and it worked. It was a rare session conducted by Roshi Kapler where no one broke through. Yet was the frenzy really necessary? Would people have awakened anyway without that degree of pressure? Did the Kensho stories which ignited this near mania invite discouragement as often as inspiration? There were those who gave way to feelings of envy, even jealousy, towards others who had while they had not. Some were swamped by feelings of inferiority when, after years of attempting to see into the realm of the absolute, they remained firmly planted in duality. Others found themselves constantly waiting for the experiences or mind states to match those of the people in the three pillars, especially when they felt that they might be approaching the moment of enlightenment. So, this, this, this approach, we could say that this, this approach had, had quite a shadow side to it. Um, Yes, the, the, the craziness of those Doksan rushes generated energy and you'd have to be present running in those, in those rushes. So you would arrive at, at the Doksan line um, in a state of, of, a, of great alertness. But there's also um, an... Uh, uh, a kind of unpleasant competitiveness in, in this, which we see in this this, um, this story of, of um, at least my teacher's version of the story <laughs> of these two colliding and, and their rush to get to Doksan. And I know I went through this, though they still have these uh, rushes, that you can get into this idea, it's just sort of an ego idea that you're somehow... Um, a more zealous Zen student if you happen to get um, in first into Doksan when in fact all that that says about you is that you got first into Doksan. Perhaps the, the, the more um, disturbing kind of shadow side is the, the um, fact that some people were uh, traumatized by this, this um, highly charged kind of atmosphere. Um, I, by the time we get, got there, this, this wasn't happening. Um, we, most of the, the stories we heard were in the past tense. I remember one um, that, that um, Roger Cole, he told me that in those days people weren't given the option of, of opting out of the, of the Kyosaku. And there was somebody in the Sashin who had had some had had traumatic experiences with being beaten as a child, and um, receiving this the stick um, uh, was it's, it just should not have happened at all. And he he um, wet himself in the zendo, the mat, and. Um, 
I don't remember now what the outcome was, whether he left immediately or, or later, but um, ter- terrible uh, abuse, really. When we started in, we started in 1982 at a workshop in Sweden, um, and we could get a whiff of this, this, this style, this very uh, vigorous, macho kind of style, um, just in the way that the, the, the Kiyosaka was used at the workshop. It was um, very, very, um, we, we were hit very hard. Um, a, f- a few weeks prior to this, um, I'd had an accident. Uh, we were living in London and this piece of lead light stained glass panel it fell on me while I was sitting in the bath and I got a very serious cut on my shoulder which had required some surgery and a skin graft and I was still recovering from that when I went to Sweden and was and participated in the workshop and it took fairly steely nerves to allow myself to be hit um, a few inches away from where I still had this, um, this healing um, shoulder happening. It, you could say there was, it, that some of the things that were happening at the centre at that time, this earlier time, were cultish, um, extreme. But there was a genuine, um, genuine belief that this, that the motivation was to help help students come to awakening and and perhaps because of this 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 genuine motivation over time um, the, the the approach was was um, changed by the time that we went back for training in 1986 when our teacher was just taking over the center um, this the 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 style of of the training was um, becoming more more moderate. The other um, sort of shadow thing that um, Roshi Grafe points out here is um, so much emphasis on breaking through that um, one can feel jealousy, envy and certainly inferiority if, if you have not yet broken f- through it was, it was very hard for me when, when Richard passed his koan um, acute jealousy um, came up for me it was very, very, very painful. Here I was supposed to be um, doing my practice for the sake of all beings and yet I resented the fact that my own husband had awakened. But Roshi, um, then, then Sensei Kolhid, um helped me a lot to to come through that by pointing out that 
I was doing the necessary character work. in continuing to, to uh, practice not getting what I wanted, not getting, getting Kensho. And this is the, this is, this is what, because the emphasis in the three pillars is so much on these breakthrough experiences that there isn't so much about all the character work we have to do. And some of us do it before we have a breakthrough and lay the groundwork. Then there are cases of people who have an early insight, but then what do they have to do after that? They have to do the character work work of developing uh, patience, perseverance and all the other qualities that are needed for practice. Humility. She says about how... Um, People found themselves constantly waiting for their experience or mind states to match those of the people in the three pillars. Um, this, is, this, I think, is one of the real traps. If we latch on to these experiences and become greedy for them, um, that we read in the three pillars, is that we create, we create this um, idea in our mind about what an awakening will be like. And then we... we uh, hold that up and um, think, think that we know what it's going to be like and when it isn't what we're experiencing isn't like what we think it should be we get discouraged or we reject what's happening and, and, or think that it should somehow be some other way and all of this gets in the way in a, in a really big way I had a friend give me a blow kind of a blow by blow account of the Sashin in which he um, saw into his koan his first koan and um, then one Sashin I tried to sort of reproduce what he'd done myself and that this was the session where I, tr I tried to go without any sleep and it's just silly to try and do that and and it made me um it made me kind of circumspect about about relating my experiences to others in in case that it would um, you know that it would get in their way but on the other hand these stories can be uh, be an inspiration be a spur um, in his article in this book um, Roshi Kolhead tells his own story in this regard 
He says, The true inspirational power of a Kensho account kicks in when, instead of provoking wistfulness and envy, it directs one back to one's own practice. I weathered physical pain, disappointment, frustration and self-doubt for years before a particularly stirring Kensho account galvanised me to reach the next level of effort. The author of the account, which was published in the Rochester Zen Centre's quarterly periodical, was an uncle figure of whom I was very fond. We had sat next to each other through many sashines, but I had thought, in my ignorance, that he was too intellectual to come to awakening. His vivid description of his own travails and sudden turnabout had an electrifying impact on me, evoking tears of joy. Gone was the ache at reading of another's success. Instead, a profound new conviction arose. If he could do it, so can I. My faith now unwavering at the next machine, I finally passed the Koan Mu. So this is the this is the non-shadow side, I guess, of these of these accounts. In this in this paragraph, um, Roshi Graves um, asks a very important question about um, whether whether um, people would would still have um, awakened without this degree of pressure. Maybe not so many people would have had a so-called breakthrough. But another question arises then is if that that, um, pressure cooker style is... uh, was needed was that Kensho in a sense a kind of forced breakthrough if, if, a, if a breakthrough is forced in this way really kind of extruded through these extreme conditions then um, it probably won't be able to be sustained afterwards Because our, our realization is made up of, of two aspects. One is certainly the seeing into reality, of uh, seeing reality, you could say. But the other side is developing a, a stable mind. And maybe we can ha- you can have a, um, a forced insight, but then you may not be ready for that insight if your mind is not really stable and steady to kind of hold that realization it can be a little bit like um, um, a flower that's, that's, that's made to bloom inside a, a hot house but then which, which um, shrivels up when it's taken outside So it's not um, this practice, uh, practice of ours is not just all about this, this 
breakthrough. It's a whole range of things. It's developing our characters and it's also um, the shamatha side of things or developing this stabilized uh, mind that can, that can hold insight, insight into emptiness. She continues, and this is um, in, a, in a sense response to these questions about about the value of or, or shadow side of, of the Kensho accounts. She writes, in fact, the fact is that Buddhism is a religion of enlightenment. The teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, which proclaim that all sentient beings have the potential to realize their true nature, spring from his profound awakening. We can say that enlightenment accounts are a kind of upaya, or skillful means, to encourage practitioners to do the work necessary to come to realization. Like the parable of the burning house in the Lotus Sutra, in which people must be induced to flee a fire, we are emboldened to leave our state of suffering by the promise of treasures yet to come. Um, in that story in the Lotus Sutra, um, it's a sort of parable where the, the, the Buddha is, is, is um, depicted as a, as a wise father who has to entice his children out of, out of their burning house by offering them beautiful toys, carts. So we could see that these, um, the, the, the promise of treasures in, the, in these enlightenment accounts. Even if the treasure turns out to be gold dust rather than gold nuggets, still it is something and we have confirmation that we are travelling in the right direction. Without the first-hand count, accounts to point the way, Zen practice might well have become nothing more than a new-agey search for tranquility or states of bliss. That's, again, we come up against this dilemma that, that talking about enlightenment makes it into a thing, which it isn't. And yet not talking about enlightenment is to deny the fact. She continues, There is nothing heterodox about divulging Kensho experiences. The descriptions follow, follow a 2,500-year-old tradition of recounting through narrative, song and verse the circumstances leading to one's awakening. Take, for example, the Terigata, which contains enlightenment accounts by nuns during the formative years of Buddhism. In Nun Dutara's story we read, Seeing the body as it really is, desires have been rooted out. Coming to birth is ended and my cravings as well. Untied from all that binds, my heart is at peace. Or Sundari Nanda, who sings, I am careful, quenched, calm and free. While Patachara says simply, When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. (laughs) 
this um, just a footnote on the on the Terigata is quite an extraordinary text. It's the the earliest known collection in the world of women's religious poetry. There are uh, 73 uh, poems uh, collected in this one book. Um, but what is more extraordinary is that these poems uh, were handed down orally for 600 years before they were written down. We get a sense of how highly valued and respected these accounts must have been for them to be passed on generation to generation for that length of time. Of course, we don't know how many were lost. There may be many more accounts that did fall by the wayside. But we can, we can be grateful for having these stories, grateful that they were preserved. And we can be grateful to the Buddha for teaching those women unselfishly just as he taught the men it's probably hard for us to really comprehend quite how revolutionary it was that uh, there was a nun's order in the Buddhist Sangha The Buddha also taught lay women. Back to back to our text. Through the long, rich history of Buddhism and Zen, the Enlightenment accounts of countless masters have been published, often as a means of encouraging and motivating students. The transmission of light, a Zen text by Keizan, contains the Enlightenment accounts of 53 ancestors, from Shakyamuni Buddha through the medieval Japanese master Eijo, and of course the, the koans themselves are... Um, very often um, stories around um, someone having an insight There were few, if any, such accounts available to Westerners at the time The Three Pillars of Zen was published Furthermore, it was somewhat of a revelation to learn that Westerners, both men and women, also had Buddha nature and could awaken to it. 
in the stories we recognize ourselves and sense that we are not alone in our spiritual gropings. As Zen Master Dogen said, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the past were like us and we will in the future become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. This is a line that from the repentance ceremony we do at uh, Jukayan at other times. If even one desperate person could find a way out of her misery and come to awakening, then surely <coughs> there is hope for us. I know this was the allure for me in reading those accounts. Ordinary people, people with jobs and families, not... Uh, uh, hermits living in, 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 uh, away from uh, civilization, just people like us who had these experiences. Reading the accounts in the three pillars, one could easily get the impression that Kensho is a once and for all life-altering experience. And here she again makes some quotes from the book. A lifetime has been compressed into one week. A thousand new sensations are bombarding my senses. A thousand new paths are opening up before me. And that was Mrs. A.M., an American schoolteacher or uh, Mrs. LTS, an American artist. The world no longer rides heavily on my back. It is under my belt. I turned a somersault and swallowed it. I am no longer restless. At last I have what I want. Or um, Mr. KY, Japanese executive. Everything flows smoothly, freely. Everything goes naturally. This limitless freedom is beyond all expression. What a wonderful world. I think it's not not surprising that reading these these statements that that people came away from the three pillars of sin um, thinking that they would um, uh, all their problems would be solved if they had this this Kensho. Uh, she writes that people not only um, thought that they would um, that Everything, or their sort of their whole lives would be would be fixed in an instant, but also that they would suddenly be able to paint or or write or read minds or remember past lives. She says so overblown were people's expectations that the experience could not help but lack the transformative power they thought it would have. No wonder Roshi Kaplow repeatedly warned, "Don't poison the real with the ideal." Kensho can certainly cause abrupt transformations, but it is never the end of the spiritual road. I think of actually of what um, uh, Sunya Kolhid, my teacher's sister, who's also a Zen teacher, um, said when, when she um, passed her koan at the, at the end of the session, Roshi Kaplow um, came up to her and, and whispered in her ear, Now the real work begins.
Many Zen students assumed that with Kensho they would have the same emotional reactions as the writers in the Three Pillars. They looked forward to being struck by a bolt of lightning. lightning. Yet, valid, a valid Kensho can come with little emotional upheaval. According to tradition, Zen master Dogen simply declared, My eyes are horizontal, my nose is vertical. While there were definitely those who responded with shouts of joy and tears of gratitude, others were chagrined to find that they did not experience any drama at all. Oddly, without the expected fireworks and inversions of heaven and earth, some practitioners actually felt cheated when they finally saw what had always been before their eyes. From Roshi Kaplow's perspective, awakening by itself was never the goal. Ongoing practice, ever-deepening realisation, maturity, harmony, compassionate action and above all actualization were his true standards. Kensho was vital, certainly, but it was only an initial step in a long road of spiritual training. Often, Roshi would say, enlightenment shows you up in other words, shows up our shortcomings. Even after a Kensho experience, it is still necessary to overcome the, the persistent illusion of ego I, clean up bad habits and let go of clinging attachments. The fruits of practice must be put into action in our everyday lives. The three pillars points this out in any number of ways. For example, in his introduction to the Enlightenment experiences, Kaplow says, Zen training stresses the need to ripen an initial awakening through subsequent koan practice and or shikantaza until it thoroughly animates one's life. In other words, to function on the higher level of consciousness brought about by Kensho, one must further train oneself to act in accordance with this perception of truth. Um, in um, integral um, psychology they talk about states versus stages where we can have, a, have an experience we can, and it can be a, a, it lasts for a certain amount of time uh, and have that experience you could say in a higher state of consciousness but we haven't reached that stage we slip back to um, this, the, the stage we normally are in which um, it does not resonate at that, that higher level. We've, it's like we just have a, little, we have a little tip of the tongue taste of it, but then because of our habit patterns, we slip, slip into a lower or, or less um, subtle state of mind. Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs> 